We look at Romans chapter 15 and the whole chapter. Let me just pray before we do that. Our Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you that you showed us your love, not for us to keep it to ourselves, but for us to bring that love into our relationships with each other and to make the world to be aware of your love as well. So we pray you help us to understand from the Bible why these things are important, that we might do them and live like Jesus from now on. We pray in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that 
from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel not to where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who've never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've often so, so why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in those regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, well, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem and bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Archaea have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. <laughs> well, let me start by asking this question. How easy do you find it to pass exams. Let me tell you, I find it really, really difficult to take exams. They fill me with horror, mainly because I've never done any preparation for any of the ones I've taken. And therefore, whenever I presented a paper, I presented a very bad paper. But fortunately, I'm old enough for the technology not to have worked in. So whenever I got my results back, usually my papers were confused with somebody else's papers. And uh, I got their good results and they got my bad results. Whenever I took an exam, that seemed to happen. So, uh, generally, I've come out with pass marks uh, everywhere, uh, and normally because someone else has done some work and I've been uh, confused with them. Now, if you understand the book of Romans, it's a bit like that, okay? The start of the book of Romans tells you that actually the guys are doing bad papers, people are getting things wrong. But then the papers seem to be confused, or not confused, but deliberately. Jesus comes and he passes the exam. He fully satisfies God's law. And then he says, here, you can have my results. So those who are not righteous can now have better results than they would have got otherwise. They have now the righteousness of Jesus given to them. But even so, we don't have, therefore, as Christians, to pass any exams anymore, but I guess you could say there are two tests that show whether we really understood that Jesus has given us his righteousness. 
and that he loves us very much. And there are two tests, and the two tests we're looking at today are first, how we are reconciled and bring our love to each other, and the second test is how we are reconciled or bring God's reconciliation to the world. So it's a hot day and we're tired and you should be able to remember those two things. Okay, reconciliation in the church, reconciliation in the world. That's what we're looking at today. Reconciliation in the world, in the church, is where we'll start. And you remember how last week we began to look at this, people getting well, getting on well together. And I love Paul's, uh, 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 a different saint, uh, uh, Saint Rob, uh, his uh, two points were uh, accept, don't argue, and uh, build up, don't trip up. See, I still remember them. And they were great points. They're a great summary of Romans chapter 14. And it seems to be that the reason why there were these two groups of people, there were the Gentiles, there were the Jews, and the reason why these two were not getting on together is over the area of food, and some like meat and some like vegetables. We might scratch our heads and say, now what was all that about? In a word, idolatry. See, Jewish people were brought up to hate idolatry, and yet when they lived in Gentile places like Rome, the way it happened is that all the meat that was um, brought to their plate, if you were going to have a good uh, beefsteak on your plate, the chances are that meat would have been offered to an idol before it got to you. And so the Jews, rather than risk going anywhere near idolatry, said, look, forget the steak, we'll just have vegetables. But the Gentile, well, he's grown up eating steaks that were offered to idols. Now he understands, he's a Christian, he's read the Bible. The Bible's got no problems with eating meat. Idols are nothing, so he can carry on enjoying his beef. And he'll get his gnashes into a good steak anytime. He doesn't have to worry about vegetables. But here are these two groups and they, for different reasons, will eat different things. And Paul says, that's fine, really. If you want to eat anything you want, the Bible tells you that that's absolutely brilliant. You are free, but equally don't judge the person who says, I'd rather not. But we might say, okay, if that is the case, and essentially we're telling people you can do what you want and you can do what you want, well, that's not really going to bring about much unity, is there? Because all that will lead to is just a, a way of tolerating people and very superficially going along with being together. But the minute you get to meal tables and things, you're divided. So your closeness doesn't really amount to very much. You can't be close if we're not the same. But the truth is, it's when you put yourself out for other people that you actually become closer to them. I mean, I can think about that from my own childhood. I used to have my selfishness smacked out of me so I could then get on with the rest of the people in my family. While I was selfish, I didn't get on with them. Once I had the selfishness smacked out of me, then I began to uh, be easier to live with. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad someone did that with Rona as well because otherwise she'd be completely more unbearable than she is now. So, 
um, God does the same thing with us only not to get rid of selfishness within our natural family he puts us in a church family to get rid of our selfishness only he doesn't smack our selfishness out of us he does it in two different ways and he does it by putting two things in front of us in verse 3 he puts Jesus in front of us and then in verse 4 he puts the scriptures in front of us I'll tell you why that helps first how it helps to have uh, Jesus in front of us in verse 3 because Jesus certainly had to do what verse 1 says he had to bear with the failings of the weak look if you know anything about the story of Jesus you will know that his disciples almost drove him to despair they were that weak constantly getting it wrong how long must I put up with you he once said but he bore with them and it was really quite difficult to bear with them because they kept getting it wrong and they particularly got it wrong in the area of wanting other people to serve them so they had little competitions on the side as to who was going to be the greater one of them and he just couldn't get it to them that actually no our job is to be servants of each other and it took a long time for them to get that and Jesus had to bear with them while they were weak and not really fully understanding but I want to suggest that the way Jesus bore with people that may be alright the way Jesus bore with people is there were two ways in which he did that the first thing he did see don't worry about him uh, he'll, be, he'll be fine the first thing that he did is he paid the cost of dying for people he bore weak people up by dying for them on the cross okay look at verse 3 because it tells us that Jesus did not please himself he certainly didn't do that when he went to the cross see when he went to the cross he went to the garden of Gethsemane all he had to do was keep walking another five minutes over the hill and he'd have been lost he wouldn't have been in the place where they came to arrest him all he had to do was to walk over the hill and go on for five minutes and no he, would, he could have disappeared but yet he went to that place where he could bear with weak disciples where he would die for them and he paid that huge huge cost with his life so that they could be helped and that he could bear their weakness now my friends I think one of the things that we need to do if we're going to really bear with each other and bear with each other's weaknesses is to really understand that it's okay even if it costs us a great deal and if you're willing to say okay I will pay any price to put up with the weakness of people in my fellowship you are on the road to being like him number one the cost he paid but there's something else he tells us in verse 3 and that is he suffered insults why did he suffer insults do you remember when he went and cleansed the temple and 
he was telling the people in the temple that they got it wrong about God and they hated him for it. And whenever we do the difficult job of not bearing with people by just simply going along with them and saying everything is fine, but when we begin to start correcting where people have get, got things wrong about God, at that point people begin to hate us. That no one likes being corrected. And in the church family, when someone comes along and says, look, I think we need to look at this decision you're making. It's not that great, is it? That then we begin to actually pay the cost of bearing with people who are weak in a way of wanting to help them. So in verse 3, we are going to be like Jesus. If we remember, it's a huge cost, but we do need to occasionally find ourselves saying, let's talk about this. And there might be a cost attached to that as well if people don't like what we're saying. But the second thing that uh, helps us to bear with people is verse 4, the endurance of the Scriptures. What's written was written in form days for our instruction. Well, what does it mean by our instruction? Does it mean that actually it will tell us certain things that we have to do and not do? And... Uh, um, and uh, I think that uh, uh, it's, it's something that uh, we might think, okay, so the instructions means do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. No. Read on to the end of verse 4 and you will see that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So the whole point of the Scriptures is to give us hope to put in front of us the kingdom of Jesus which is on its way which we will ultimately be part of and in that hope we start living for the not yet rather than now. And once we start having that dimension in our minds when people around us are weak and we say I know that's what, that's what, that's what it's like now it won't be like that there. Let me just wait. Let me just continue to have hope in what this is going to be like in the future. Then those weaknesses will be easier for us to bear. And so we begin to care for people who are weak in view of the future that we will share. And in that way, in verse 6, verse 5, we will be able to live in harmony with one another and together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, never think that you're going to enter into a strong fellowship. Always think that your fellowship is going to be a weak fellowship. Our church is going to be a church of weak people and we need to bear with each other. And here are ways God gives us to grow in our likeness to Jesus by bearing with each other in the cost that we pay, in the encouragement that we bear to sharpen each other up, and in the way that we put in front of us the hope that we will one day enjoy living in together. And we live in that anticipation in our relationships now. Okay? So, reconciliation in the church. Let's go on to look at the other side. Oh, let me just say, this is very unique. You won't get this 
kind of care anywhere else outside a Christian community. I know the politicians talk about uh, one nation Britain, how different nations can live together in one nation with wonderful harmony. Well, you can work out whether you think that's happening or not. Isn't it true that generally, even in this little area where lots of people live together from different countries, that by and large we keep ourselves to ourselves? We don't really integrate all that much, do we? Even the politicians, even the ones in their own party can't live in harmony with each other. And they make little digs with each other all the time. Remember the, the great uh, uh, the two people on the same side, Gordon Brown and, Mendel, uh, and uh, Mandelson, that hated each other. And Gordon Brown would say, I'm so united to Mandelson, uh, if he wanted, I'd give him 10p to phone a friend. And then he went on to make a dig. In fact, I'll give him 20 pieces so he can phone them all. Um, and, and, you know, people were just constantly sniping at each other. Well, that's what it's like in the world. But within uh, the f- family of Christians, there is this unique ability to take weak people to bear with them and to care for them. And we bring our desire of a church, not that it should be a strong church, but that we, through the weakness of other people, are helped to grow ourselves in the likeness of Jesus, bearing with them. Okay, into the world. And how do we get reconciliation in the world? Because this is not just... uh, It is important for us to see that it's not God's purpose just to bring reconciliation and harmony into the church. It is God's purpose to take the gospel out into the world. And so Paul uses language, if you were a Jew, you'd be falling off your stool. When you look and uh, see in verse 16, that he calls himself a minister, in fact a priest to the Gentiles. That is incredible when he talks about his priestly service of the gospel to God. He calls himself a priest in the work that he does with people who aren't in God's family, the Gentiles, as they call them then. That's an extraordinary thing, because, you see, a priest, if you were a Jew and you understood your Bible, is not a person who does work out in the Gentile world. The priest did his work in the temple in the congregation of believers. And in the congregation of believers, the priest acted as the go-between between man and God. Man would bring his sacrifice, and the priest would offer them in order that this person would become acceptable to God. So priests, right throughout the Bible, are operating with believers within the family of God, in the sanctuary. But now, Jesus has come, he's done the work of the priest, he's done the go-between work, we don't need any priests in the sanctuary anymore. So in the New Testament, people never talk talk about a Christian minister, uh, about a Christian minister as a priest. Never. Christian ministers are called pastors or elders or overseers. Never, never priests. This is the one and only time in the whole New Testament that a Christian minister is called a priest. 
where they are doing that go-between work between the unbeliever and God by explaining the gospel to them so they can be brought close. And they do the priestly work is now the person who goes out into the community. The priests work in the community bringing people to Christ. This is very, very new and uh, Jews in Rome would have been uh, wondering why Paul was saying what he was saying. It's the Gentiles, the non-Christians that need priests. You don't need them in church anymore. And so Paul brings his priestly work uh, of the Gentiles. And he says he wants to come and uh, do that work uh, in, in Spain uh, but in verses 22 and 23 he wants to come and see them first on the way to Spain because there are more unbelievers there and what he's saying is look I've, I've finished my work in the, in the eastern Mediterranean if you're looking at the map from where you're sat it'll be that way and so I've finished my work in the eastern Mediterranean and now I'm going to start with Spain and go west in the Mediterranean to those countries on the west of it. But first, I've got an important job to do. I've got a big fat check in my pocket that I'm taking from the Gentiles to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it is interesting, isn't it, how therefore what Paul is telling us is that this Jewish-Gentile thing is actually really very close. Here's proof positive. The Gentiles are sending lots of money to the poor Jews who live in Jerusalem. So you can't say that they're superficially not together because, well, the Jews are helping the Gentiles because the gospel has gone to the Gentiles from the Jews. And now the Gentiles are helping the Jews by sending them money. So clearly these two groups are together and united. And Paul said, I've got to do this work first, then I'll come to you, and then I'll go on to Rome. Now you might say, the Roman people may be sending, why are you, why are you coming to us? You've already said that you want to go and explain the gospel where Jesus isn't known in verse 20. So what on earth are you coming here? Because we've already got a church here and you didn't plant it. Why did, if, you, if all you're saying is you want to go and plant where no one's heard about Jesus before, why are you coming to us? And I want to suggest to you the point uh, that uh, he wants to make here is that he wants them to know that the task of world evangelism is not just his, but it is theirs as well. So he's going to come to Rome in order to get support from them, so he can then, with a big fat check from them, go out and do work in new places. But he's not going straight there. He wants to get other Christians involved in this work of evangelism in the places that are close to them, like Spain. And so it is important, isn't it, that when we understand that uh, the gospel 
is not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of those who are outside our church, then one of the things that ordinary Christians can do to add strength to that work is to support it financially. Because at that point, if you know the rugby term, you have skin in the game. You are showing that the job of evangelism is also yours, not just a task of a person who might just breeze in and breeze out um, working by himself. This is the church's work to reach the world. And so Paul wants to stop by on the way and uh, draw help from Rome. Now I've been forgetting to press the button so you can see what I was saying earlier. The Gentiles, Christian, love the Jewish Christians by giving them money and the task of the world also using money belongs to everyone as he goes via Rome to pick up support from them. Okay, let's finish. What's the take-home for us as we uh, uh, bring things to a close? Well, what we normally do in our church is to try and aim at three different groups of people. We aim at people who just do not know uh, Jesus uh, or very new to Christianity. What might this passage say to people like that? What might this passage say to people who have been to church lots and lots? And what might this, uh, but maybe not Christians, and what does this passage say to people who are real Christians who want to be like Jesus more? I want to suggest first, starting with the person who's maybe outside the kingdom of Jesus, not a Christian yet, that this passage, although it doesn't actually give you a direct message saying, this is for you, non-Christian, listen, I think indirectly this part of the Bible is pointing out something that I think does make sense if you're not a Christian. Isn't it true that by and large, if you're not a Christian, we generally do the opposite of verse 1 and largely live to please ourselves? Number one is most important and we live with ourselves in view and nobody else. Now, there are exceptions to that, but generally where people, I think, aren't on their own, but they're part of a group, isn't it true that the group that they're part of is usually a group that's just like them? Sharing their interests, maybe sharing their age, maybe sharing their background. So, yes, they, if they're not entirely on their own, there'll be people who are just with people just like them. And what this part of the Bible, I think, opens up for us is a new world where we can be delivered from that kind of selfish uh, isolation or preoccupation and drawn into a new community of people where we serve each other at great cost rather than just simply living to please ourselves. You might say, is that a frightening group to be part of? I think yes, I suppose you could begin to think like that, but isn't it great to be part of a group where people genuinely welcome each other, not avoid each other? 
And Jesus puts us into this family to make us less selfish. And I'd want to suggest actually that in our better moments, all of us would like to lose that selfishness. We can't lose our selfishness unless we are in the thick of it in the life of a church. We can only keep our selfishness in a church if by and large our relationships are at an arm's length. But the minute you start getting close to people, their weaknesses will come out and the opportunities to bear with them will come up. But if we want to stay by ourselves, largely the non-Christian world would prefer to do that. And I think actually what this Bible passage does is to open up a new world, I think a more loving one. And it's a great world to walk into. If you're not a Christian, ask the Lord Jesus to draw you into his likeness tonight and into the middle of his people. What happens if you've been part of a religious world, you've been to church lots maybe growing up, and you've been to lots of services, but you haven't really sort of understood really what this kind of Christianity is about. It's so easy to miss, isn't it? Because what this opens up for us is the realization that it's not just enough for us to understand the wonderful reconciliation God brings to us, but it shows we haven't really understood it if we aren't fully into being reconciled with each other. Reconciled with people who are very different to us, like the Jews were different to the Gentiles in Rome. Instead, isn't it true that uh, religion, rather than welcoming and accepting, can actually exclude people? So you take the largely black uh, Pentecostal churches that are around, and largely the music, the style, everything, the culture excludes people who are not from that background. <coughs> You won't hang around there long if that's not your scene. You'll be excluded from it. And I think religion actually excludes. And if you are part of a group where only like-minded people are drawing together, well, I think that shows that you've got religion, but you haven't got the gospel. And it's not really helpful if... Um, uh, the church that we go to, the services are there, we attend them regularly, but the relationships are distant and sometimes judgmental. I want to suggest that actually it's really important if you come out of that to leave it well behind and to turn to the God who will reconcile you and bring you close in relationships, not just in religious meetings, close in relationships with his people as he brings you into a new world of really deeply loving others. Thirdly, what happens if you're a real believer and you're so grateful that God has reconciled you to himself and you want to live in closer relationship with each other? It's just that it's a pain when you have to bear with people. As Jesus found it was a pain to bear with his weak disciples getting it wrong again and again and again. How do you put up with people like that all around you all the time? But I think I want to suggest that that picture is a help to us 
But remember that will only be possible for us if we remember how Jesus paid the price and how we need to pay the cost of caring for people. It really won't be hard. But you've got to remember the price that Jesus paid if we are going to say, okay, and that price I'm happy to pay as well in our care for each other. And it will only help us if we have our scriptures in front of us and we live with the hope of being in a community that ultimately is there to anticipate uh, full unity in heaven. The encouragement of the scriptures so that we can have hope. But in addition to that, I want to suggest that if you're a real believer, you will want to give yourself to the reconciliation of the world. That's why our church, if you walked in and read the small print on the opening slide, you know that our church exists to visit every home in our area to explain the importance of Jesus and to encourage each other to joyfully follow him. My friends, if that estate is less important to you than this church, then I think this part of the Bible has got a lot to say to us. This is God saying, no. Part of me reconciling you to me is that you reconcile to each other, but also bring that reconciliation to the estate as well. And one of the ways we would want to do that is financially. And I think it's really hard for us to say that we are wanting to be fully involved in the mission of the church if frankly we are not committed in this area of it. And you can see how uh, the um, uh, Roman Christians were going to be invited to uh, uh, support Paul in, in that evangelism that he was going to do in Spain and where I think if I'm true to the Bible I'll be wanting to encourage every single person here without exception to start contributing to the mission and evangelism of your local Christian community. And if you're not doing that, you haven't got world evangelism. And if you haven't got world evangelism, I wonder whether you've really ultimately got the reconciliation that Jesus has done for you. And therefore it's important, isn't it, for us to grow in this area. They say the last thing to be converted in anybody's life is their pocket. And I want to suggest to you that actually it is a great thing to be involved in the wonderful reconciliation that God has done for you by bringing it into the experience of others too. Let's pray that God will help us to do that and uh, not just to nod at the idea of evangelism for other people but to pay for it which shows that that's where we really believe work needs to happen. So let's pray that God will help us. Maybe just one minute while you think and pray what God is saying to you through this. And then I'll pray a kind of roundup prayer for all of us. And then after that, we'll take questions and maybe try and work out some answers. Let's pray first quietly, personally, privately, on our own.